if I've not met you yet, I'm JP and just want to welcome you with us this morning. Um, and as you can tell, maybe if you haven't been with a couple weeks with us, uh, we've been showing some videos and interviewing people who have come throughout the various decades of our church as a build-up, as a lead-up to our Celebration Sunday that Pastor Dan mentioned on September 9th. And, and in addition, as you can see, every week we get here, there's more pictures on the wall that are encapsulating some of the photos and memories from each of those decades. So if you've not had a chance to check those out yet, I would just encourage you to, to take a look after service um, in order to just kind of get a, get a glimpse of what God had been doing in our church through each of those decades as we continue to build towards our Celebration Sunday on September 9th. Now, um, for the rest of us that are um, here this morning, I want to make sure that you all know that we are in the second week of a series called We Are the Church. And kind of the, the, the crux of this sermon, or the series rather, is this idea that we talked about last week, that we recognize the church doesn't just exist for us, that it's not just about the people who call a church home our church home. That's not all it is. In fact, it's not about the building at all. It's a fact that we, as the people, we are the church, and we exist for the world. We exist to make a change in this world. And so we are in this We Are the Church series to kind of embody what the early church did in the first couple chapters of Acts. And then um, we will kind of dive into the rest of Acts later on in the fall. But we're going to have the first couple chapters of Acts is where we are as we study this topic this morning. And so just to give a quick recap from last week, last week we looked at Acts chapter 1 and we looked at the Matthias and how Matthias was uh, reinstated, or rather he was called into being an apostle um, to fill in Judas' place. And so the main point that we talked about last week was that being part of a church is more than just attending on Sunday mornings. It's being plugged in to the people and the purpose of the church. It's being plugged into the people and the purpose of the church. So it's not just showing up on a Sunday morning in a building, not knowing anybody and leaving. It's being plugged into people and relationships. But then it's also not just getting plugged into people and just learning without the fact that the purpose of the church is not to stay in our comfy seats. The purpose of the church is to go off and to make a change in the world, to be witnesses and to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus came and died for us and that's not wishful thinking. That's prayerful trusting. And so that's where we've been. And so in order for us to get ready for where we are going, I would ask that you would join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for this time that we could open up your word. I thank you for each person that is here now or that is listening online later that, um, that you love them and that they know how precious they are in your sight, and that they are here for a reason this morning. So Lord, I pray that as we open up your word, that I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would speak in a, in a mighty way to each and every one of us, and may we have the eyes to see, the ears to hear, and the heart to experience what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, I've shared with many of you who've been with us over the past several months, I've shared with you that one of the biggest struggles in my life has been the struggle of uh, perfectionism, of the idea of needing and wanting and feeling like I had to be perfect in every aspect of my life, which, as we all know, if you struggle with this, is that it's never possible to be perfect. And I had this really unique uh, dynamic with being a perfectionist, because especially in school, but, but even still to a degree, I would want to be a perfectionist, but I was also a really bad perfectionist procrastinator. So it's one of those where it's like I would wait to the last minute 
and then it would have to be perfect. And so it's this really rough dynamic that didn't actually make any sense. Um, but it's this idea of, I remember growing up and just feeling like I had to be perfect in every aspect of my life. I had to get perfect grades and I, and I had to be the perfect student and I'd be the perfect person. And, and it becomes this weight. If you've ever struggled with perfectionism, it's this weight that you know you cannot stand up under. Because the weight of perfectionism and trying to be perfect is not a weight that any one of us is even capable of having because only Jesus is perfect. That we all fall short, we all have issues, we all have wounds, we all have heartaches, we all have struggles, we all have temptations, we all have areas in which we recognize ourselves that we are not perfect. But our culture focuses on perfectionism or, or, or focuses on how well we do our performance in things. And so I just remember growing up and thinking, okay, I need to be perfect. And for some of us, if we struggle with perfectionism, we often, when we fail or fall short, which we inevitably will, we often fall into two different camps. One camp is the camp of, okay, I need to be perfect, I failed, but I'm gonna be driven to keep going and be more perfect or, or even better at this or go over the top. And so it drives us to pursue perfectionism even more clearly. For, us, so for some of us, for myself included, it almost goes the opposite route of, okay, if I, I can't, it doesn't drive me to perfectionism, it drives me to depression. And it drives me to feeling beaten down, broken down, and feeling down because I realize I'm never gonna make that. I'm never gonna reach that level of perfection that I unfairly, that we unfairly hold ourselves to. And so if we were to look at, if you were waiting to, to bring in a pastor that's the perfect pastor, you'd still be waiting. In the same way that if we were waiting to have a church that was filled with perfect people, this room would be empty. And that's okay because our main point today, this idea that the church isn't filled with perfect people. It's filled with people who've been changed by God to make a change in this world. That it's not about perfection. It's about trusting in the one who is perfection. It's not about hoping that we can be good enough. It's and wishful thinking that we can be good enough. It's prayerfully trusting that because Jesus is good enough that we now are enough. And I had to wrestle through what it was to overcome perfectionism and God had to do some work in me and through me and, and dig into some recesses of my soul with wounds and pains that I've had or heartaches that I had that had caused me to believe in the lie that the only way I could be lovable is if I'm perfect. Because that's just patently not true. And if any of you are experiencing that this morning, may you know that that is patently untrue, that you are loved because God loved us, that he's demonstrated his love for us, that while we were sinners, Jesus died for us, that it wasn't based on how our performance or our perfection was, but it's on the fact that the perfect one came down and he lived a horrible life and died a horrible death, or sorry, lived a perfect life, died a horrible death, and was raised to new life. And that's the foundation upon which we live. Now, I have friends who maybe... I'm not the only one with this struggle. In fact, I have a friend who they shared their story before at a previous church in which they were joining a small group. They were asked to join a small group together as some leaders. And um, they'd been at the church for 40 years together. 
Now, the husband was someone who, without, knowing, without, without his wife knowing, started to drink vodka every single night and, and kind of needed that buzz, in his opinion. He thought like he had to have a vodka and cranberry every single night, but he was hiding it from his family, hiding from those around him in order to keep up this perception that everything was perfect. And it was through this small group study, one of the weeks was this idea of breaking through strongholds or breaking the chains of those areas in which the enemy seems to have a hold on us. And it was breaking this chain and through doing so and praying through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the love of Jesus Christ, that those strongholds, those chains would be snapped in two so that we no longer would have to fall into those things. And so during that time, he had prayed and he had felt and he had experienced this victory from this need to have alcohol. He poured it all out the drain. He told me the next week that he had poured everything else out. And that he and his wife then got closer through this communication. They then asked if they were attending this small group, they were asking if they could lead a new small group, that if they could be ones that can help walk other people through their own strongholds or their own areas of needing life change. And so they did that. They led that group and that group got really strong to the point where now one of the people from that group ended up leading another group that was going through this small group process. And so now through the change that one man had experienced and the change that that had had in his marriage, they then were able to lead other people from ages 20 through 80 and everywhere in between into experience the kind of life change that truly does bring life. The kind of change that isn't just for us to keep to ourselves, but that we would be changed so that we can make a change in this world. And that's just one example of many. And many of us, maybe you're on that other side of victory. You're on that side of victory where God is using you to make a change in this world. And it's absolutely incredible because it's often through our own imperfections that God is perfecting us and allowing us to reach those who have similar imperfections and struggles. But maybe for some of us, you're still right in the thick of this struggle, this heartache, this pain, and you're wrestling with that this morning. And so what I want to do is remind us of our main point, which is going to be on the screen. The church isn't filled with perfect people. It's filled with people who have been changed by God to make a change in this world. Now, as you're looking at your notes right now, you may notice that the main point doesn't say that. Uh, the main point was actually from last week's point, and my loving wife came up to me afterwards, and she said, honey, I just wanted you to know that the, the main point was from last week, but don't worry, you don't have to be perfect. And I was like... <laughs> I married a good one, y'all. I married a good one. Um, but so the main point, I'm going to leave it up there for a moment just because so you can actually write it down, is that it's the church isn't filled with perfect people. It's filled with people who have been changed by God, not just for ourselves, but to make a change in the world. Now, as uh, we're looking at that, we're going to look at a story uh, of a person in the Bible who I feel really embodies this idea that we, we're going to look at different passages from the Gospels, looking at the story of Peter, and we're not going to read all of them from the Bible. I'm gonna, we're going to share the stories of them. We're going to talk about them, but we're going to kind of track a little bit of Peter's journey because somehow something happened in Peter's life to be able to go from a man who was trying to be a fisherman to being someone who became a fisher of men. And so what was that change? How did it happen? And so we're going to take a look at his story. What I do want to ask you to do is to have uh, your Bible open to Acts chapter 2, starting around verse 32, because we're going we're gonna to culminate in that in a few moments as we progress in this journey here together, looking at Peter's story. But as you are getting ready for that, the first thing that we all need to know about Peter is that he, in your notes, was an imperfect person. Person just like us. 
He was an imperfect person, just like us. That in that time, in first century Judea, this whole idea was that in order to be perfect, the people who were viewed as perfect were the rabbis. They were the ones that were the smartest of the smartest. They were the best of the best. They were the ones that just, that was the goal, was in order to be a rabbi for the first century Jewish culture. And so we look at Peter and, and we recognize that Peter was not a rabbi. We see that it was the best of the best that from Jewish school, they would learn at a young age, they would memorize the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, or the Pentateuch is another way for, to say that, but it's the first five books. The best of the best out of there would go to the next level of schooling, which they would then, in that level of schooling, would memorize the entire Hebrew scriptures, or for us, it's the entire Old Testament. They would memorize every single bit of it. And then the best of the best would then be invited to follow the dust of a rabbi. A rabbi would look at this student, see that they were the best of the best of the best, and he would say, come, follow me. I believe that you have what it takes to be a rabbi just like I do. So follow with me, walk in my shoes, see what I see, say what I say, do what I do, and act as I act, because I think you have what it takes to be like me. And so we look at that picture, and I just take a moment to, to explain that or to dive into that, because we look at the fact that Peter and none of the apostles were Rabbis, they were not the smartest of the smartest. They were not the best of the best. And so if he was basing his life on being perfect, he was already falling short. And then we look at the fact when, he, when Jesus calls him in Matthew and Luke that we see that he was a fisherman, but even he had his bad days as a fisherman, was unsuccessful. And it was when Jesus told him to cast the net on the side that he was able to actually catch fish. And, and then it's in that moment that Jesus looks at him and in the same way that a rabbi would look at the best of the best of the best to say, come, follow me, I think you have what it takes. Jesus says these words that we don't even grasp in, the, in our culture now because a follower is just something you do on social media nowadays. But this idea, when, some, when Jesus as a rabbi would say, Peter, come follow me, it's saying, Peter, I see this in you. You can see what I see and say what I say and do as I do and act as I act because I believe that you can be like me. It has this weight and this power that can get lost on our understanding. So what he's saying is that he's then able to have that experience with Jesus, but then he has an up, his ups and downs. He's a passionate person. And I think we, we can often kind of paint him with a broad brush that, oh, he was a fool. No, he was passionate and he loved Jesus, but sometimes that love was just slightly misdirected. And so he says things like, no, Jesus, you, you will not die. And then Jesus has to say to him, no, get behind me, Satan, because this is what God has called me to do. But it's because he is passionate about him. He has times when Jesus, where Peter would say, you know, no, don't wash my feet, Jesus, because you, you shouldn't be washed my feet. Then Jesus says, well, I have to wash your feet in order for you to enter the kingdom. He says, okay, well, then wash all of me because he was passionate and he loved Jesus, but he would fall short. He had these ups and downs, but we recognize the deepest down in his life, the, the, the moment of his greatest shame and heartache was when at the table of the Last Supper, he promised Jesus that he would not disown him. He would not betray him. And then Jesus says, by the time the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And we pick up the story just briefly. It's on the screen from Matthew 26, verses 73 through 75. We see that after a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them for your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses on himself and he swore to them, I don't know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter, remembering the word Jesus had spoken, that before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. 
And he went outside and he wept bitterly. He was an imperfect person, just like us. That there are times in our lives when we've fallen short from where we've wanted to be as believers in Jesus. We've had times in which maybe we believe in Jesus, but when someone asks us about it, we say, I mean, like, I, I, mean, I like Jesus. I'm not like one of those crazy Christians, but you know, like I'm a, I'm a Christian. And we kind of disown the fact that God owns us. And we almost distance ourselves from that. Or maybe there's times we just don't stand up for our faith. There's times we don't share when God puts it upon our heart to reach out to someone and to share the gospel with them. There's times in which we all fall short, that we are all imperfect people. And like Peter, he's an imperfect person just like us. But that wasn't the end of Peter's story. And that's not the end of our story. That he was an imperfect person, but he's also a cha- he was changed by God just like us. He was changed by God just like us. That he experienced two things that we're going to dive into briefly. The first is that he experienced the life-altering love of Jesus. The life-altering love of Jesus. That in John 21, we're not going to read the whole passage there, but there's a section in which Peter decides, I'm going to go back to fishing. And he goes, and the, some of the other disciples follow him. He, they have a night of fishing. Jesus is on the shore. He'd already resurrected. He's on the shore, and he says, you know, why don't you cast the net over on the side? And they catch 153 fish, which this is one of those times where I love the detail of the Bible, that John, the apostle, the gospel, he was there. And so he's able to say, no, there's 153. And so he was able to be specific. I love details. But he's able to say there's 153 fish that were caught. And that reminded Peter of that moment when Jesus called him to follow him. So he takes off his outer garment. And with his passion, he swims out onto the water to be the first one to see Jesus. But then we don't see until a couple verses later the conversation that they had. It's almost like he got there. Then he realized his failures. Then he realized that he's standing in front of the perfect one who was raised from the dead that he had denied three times. And that he was imperfect. So he doesn't go talk to him right away. And then we see later on that they end up having a conversation with Jesus and Peter. And and Jesus asks, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? This word they use for love there is this word of agape. It's it's out of the four Greek words for love. It's the love. It's this godly love, this unconditional love, this unmerited favor love. He says, Simon, son of Jonah, do do you agape? Do you love me? And he says, and Peter responds, Lord, you know that I phileo you. You know that I love you like a brother. Because he recognizes his failure and recognizes that he cannot claim perfect love because he's imperfect. We, don't, we lose this in the text because of our English language and the word love being used the same way. But then Jesus says again, Simon, son of Jonah, do you agape me? And he says, Lord, you know that I phileo you. And then lastly, the third time, Jesus says, Simon, son of Jonah, do you even phileo me? Do you even love me like a brother? And it says in that moment that Peter was wounded. He was grieved. He was cut to the heart. And he says, Lord, you know that I love you. You know all things. You know that I love you. And it's through, through those three confessions of Jesus, of Jesus's, I'm sorry, Peter's love for Jesus, that then those three betrayals and those three denials have then been reinstated. And it's like Jesus saying, okay, then now go feed my sheep, go tend to my flock, go feed my flock. He's saying, now go and do that which I have called you to do as an apostle, to go and to be that person. You've been changed by my radical life-altering love. And so now you get to go show people this radical life-altering love of Jesus. 
Now, we look at this story of, of being experiencing that love, and we can maybe put ourselves in there and, and saying, you know, do you really love me? And hearing Jesus ask us that, say, Lord, you know, in the midst of all my mistakes and my failures, I don't claim perfect love for you, but I do love you. Then he says, go and make a change in this world then. We often know the passage, if we've been around church for a while, we know that Hebrews chapter 11 is a a section of scripture in which we see a lot of heroes of the faith. It can be called the hall of faith for some people, but we look at these heroes of the faith and, and it would help us to take a moment because we can often put these heroes, put these people on a pedestal and think that they must have had a perfect kind of faith, that, that we are imperfect, but they must have been perfect. But in order for us to actually look at it, let's just look at a few of those stories that we see there. We recognize that Abraham, though he was the father of nations, he lied about Sarah being his wife. We recognize that Jacob was someone who had to deceive his way into his inheritance. We realize that Moses was too insecure to speak, and God ended up saying, okay, well, then Aaron's going to have to speak for you. We see that Joshua lacked courage to go into the promised land to the point that three times God had to say in Joshua 1, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous. We recognize that Rahab had had a seedy past. We recognize that Samson had relationship miscomings, just to put it lightly. We recognize that David cheated and killed. The disciples doubted and hid that Peter betrayed and Paul persecuted. You and I have fallen short, but all of us have been redeemed. That it's not about perfection or performance. That we have been made redeemed by the radical, life-altering love of Jesus Christ. And when we take hold of that, we recognize that our foundation is no longer built on perfectionism or performance or anything else other than the foundation of Jesus' perfection and that he performs the act that we could not perform for ourselves, laying down his life for our sins so we may have eternal life. So Peter experienced the radical, life-altering love of Jesus, but he also experienced this life-altering power of the Holy Spirit. The life-altering power of the Holy Spirit that we see in Acts 2, verses 1 through 4. Again, we won't hit the whole story there, but Peter is with the disciples, and they're up in an upper room. And it's in this moment that all, a lot of the Jewish people were there for the festival, Pentecost. And so people from all over the world were there. And while the, peop- the disciples were praying... It was like tongues of fire had come upon them, and they were able to now go out into Jerusalem and speak and preach the gospel in a language that was not their own, but it was a language of those who had come to be in Jerusalem for the festival. And so it was the power of the Holy Spirit that had resonated in his life and in our lives. And so for us, for some of us, we love Jesus, and we've given our lives to him, but we've tamed the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that, that we feel like maybe our temptation is too strong to be overcome, or that our wound and heartache is, is too painful for the Holy Spirit to heal, or that our loneliness is, is too great that the Holy Spirit can't be a comforter to us, or we feel so lost that he can't be our guide. But God did not give us a spirit of timidity or of fear. But as 2 Timothy 1.7 says, he gave us a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline or self-control that maybe you feel like your pain is too great and your struggles are too deep. But then I would ask you, maybe are we misunderstanding the depth and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives? 
That Romans 8.11 says that if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. That the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives inside those who believe and confess upon his name and believe in their hearts and are saved. So we don't have a lack of power. We have a spirit who gives us power and love and self-control and self-discipline. And so we can't be resigned to our temptations or resigned to our pain or resigned to those things because Peter experienced a great change to the point where he went from being afraid to say that he knew Jesus in front of a small crowd on the night of the crucifixion or before the crucifixion to the point where through the radical life-altering love of Jesus and the radical life-altering power of the Holy Spirit come upon him that he was able to go and preach in Jerusalem in front of thousands about the gospel of Jesus Christ. What changed What changed was the love of Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit, and that he had been changed by God, but not just for himself. But as our last point says today, that he was changed to make a change just like us. That he couldn't keep that to himself, but that he was changed to make a change just like us. Now I'm going to Start and like kind of near the end of Peter's sermon. If you want to read the whole sermon in Acts chapter 2, um, that's great. That's awesome. For today, I want to focus a little bit on the end of his sermon, the people's response, and how Peter um, shares with them and encourages them. So I'm going to jump in at Acts chapter 2, verse 32. He said, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Therefore, I'm going to jump down to verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Now, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them to save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So recognize that Peter was able to share out of his own wounds. He's able to share the fact that when he was cut to the heart, when Jesus asked, do you even love me? He was able to speak right to the heart of the people. So they too had themselves cut to the heart of wondering, how do I do this? This great life altering love that the crowd experienced through the story of Jesus or through Peter. And then we see the great life altering power of the Holy Spirit. They say, what must we do? Because they were cut to the heart. He says, repent, be baptized. The Holy Spirit will come to you. And thousands were added to their number that day that Peter was not changed himself before the, to, to make a change, I should say, in the world. And as Pastor Dan mentioned during this time earlier in the announcement time, that we saw, we chose those two missionaries specifically this morning to hear from Mary Del Glass and Steve Captain and his family because, as Pastor Dan mentioned, they were people who were sitting in this building at one point. And they were people who had been feeling that call, that they had been changed by God, but it wasn't just for them to stay here, that God was calling them to make a change somewhere out in the world. And they followed that call. And we've been able to see great ministry come out of their ministry and what God has done. Because they know, like we should know, that 
We are not changed for ourselves, but to make a change. And for some of us, yes, that might be that God is stirring, especially this younger generation, to, to be pastors and to be missionaries and to make that change. And for some of us, maybe whatever generation is, we recognize Mary Dell, she was called and she followed. It didn't matter what age she was, she went and she's been a missionary for the past several years. So we specifically looked at people who are from our church, being sent out by our church to say that we are the church and we exist for the world. So for, for you this morning, as we close, perhaps you're hearing this message and, and you're thinking about the story of Peter and maybe you can relate a little bit, but, but maybe you're still thinking, but yeah, but you don't understand what I've done. Or maybe you don't understand what's been done to me. Or you don't understand this thing that I hold on to. You don't understand the depths to which I am an imperfect person. And maybe you look at, the, you feel like too that you're too much of a failure to be called by God or used by God. But let's look at one final passage, a pivotal passage in the story of Peter. It's from Matthew 16. It'll be on the screens. But what about you, Jesus asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, Jesus replied. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. This is the moment in which Simon becomes Peter. This is the moment when Simon, who was insecure, who was imperfect, who fell short, that he then received his calling to be Peter, which means rock, that he is the rock upon which Jesus would build his church. And so if we ever would, were to become a church in which we felt that people had to be perfect in order to come here, we're missing the point entirely because Jesus didn't find the best rabbi to build his church upon. He didn't find the person who had the fewest amount of sins to build his church on. He found Peter, who was an imperfect person just like us, who was changed by God just like us, who was changed to make a change just like us so that we can continue to have a church of people who are changed by God just like us, just like you and just like me. Recognize that it's not about perfection or performance. It's about God's presence and our trust and our hope, not our wishful thinking, but our prayerful trusting in who he is. And so Peter wasn't perfect and Jesus made him the cornerstone, or not the cornerstone, but the rock upon which the church was built. Then we know, then I know that an imperfect person like me has a home here. That imperfect people like us have a home here in the church. And we can welcome other people who may be imperfect, but long to be changed by God. That they would have a home here as well. Because the church isn't filled with perfect people. It's filled with people who've been changed by God to make a change in the world. I want to close with this passage from 2 Corinthians 5. And the ministry that you and I have once we've been changed, Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says it this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God would be reconciled, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins amongst them, against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. That's our job is to share this message of reconciliation like Peter did, that people, you are, might be far from God because you're sinning, but there's a perfect God who loves you and who sent his son to die for you. And we are reconciling God from the, to the world and bridging that gap that Jesus allows for us to do. So then he says here in verse 20, therefore we are Christ ambassadors as though 
God, we're making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. That because we've been changed, because we've been reconciled, we have a ministry of reconciliation as God's ambassadors to find people far from God who need God, that we bring them in so they don't feel like they have to be perfect before they come into these doors, but that we are imperfect and through sharing our stories, we can be a light to them. Now, with this idea of ministry of reconciliation, this idea of this impact that one person can have, if we as a church truly continue to truly live this out. Now, a few years ago, sorry, a few months ago, I had the opportunity to go to the Billy Graham Library in North Carolina. We have a picture here of, of his house and the, uh, the, uh, the museum. So his house is on the left. Uh, the museum is the barn that has a cross on it. And so we went through the museum, a couple friends and I, we had a few hours before we had to be somewhere. So we went there together and we walked around. The next picture I want to show you is Billy and Ruth Graham's graves. He had just died probably about a month before we got there. And so his grave was there. Um, on his grave, all it says is just all he wanted said was that he was a preacher of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all he wanted to be known as. Now, right next to it, the next picture we have is a sign that was near. You can't read it. You're not meant to read it. It's okay. Um, But what it said is that near that grave, it talks about how Billy Graham had the opportunity to share the gospel to over 215 million people in more than 185 different countries through his ministry. That's through preaching live. That's through radio or TV. He had the opportunity to preach to 215 million people in over 185 different countries. And now we could look at that scope and say, wow, I will never have that kind of impact. And you know what? Maybe some of us won't. But have you ever thought about the person who reached the person who reached you? Have you ever thought about the person who Maybe it was your parents that you grew up in a Christian home. So then who reached your parents for Christ? Because that person had such an impact on your parents, which had an impact on you, which as we see when people love and obey his commands, that blesses thousands of generations. So maybe it's not a parent. Maybe it was a family member. Maybe it was a friend. Maybe it was a coworker, whatever it was. Who was the person that changed you and and who was the person that reached them? The reason I bring this up is that we're one, one of the moments that was most impactful for me when I was at the Billy Graham Library is something that this, picture, this next picture shows up here. So I'm going to have uh, us look at this here. Um, and in this picture, it's talked about the strong progression of a witness towards Jesus Christ. And I'm going to get a little bit closer so I can read it to you all because it's a little small. It says this. It talks about the people who had an impact in Billy Graham's conversion. Sunday school teacher named Edward Kimball he won a shoe clerk to Jesus named D.L. Moody. Now, D.L. Moody, he traveled to England, and he, when doing so, awakened the heart of a young pastor named F.B. Meyer. F.B. Meyer became one of the great Bible expositors. He came to the U.S., and he preached at college campuses and was used to convert a student to Christ named Wilbur Chapman. Wilbur Chapman attended one of Moody's meetings in Chicago, and he became D.L. Moody, Moody's co-worker. That same Wilbur Chaplin, he employed an ex-baseball player as his assistant, whose name was Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday became a great evangelist and preached in Charlotte, North Carolina, and he organized the the Billy Sunday Layman's Evangelistic Club, renamed the CBMC. And the CBMC invited an evangelist in Charlotte. His name was Mordecai Ham. And Mordecai Ham preached in the tent meeting where Billy Graham was saved. So think about that. Do you think that... Edward Kimball had any idea the impact of him reaching out and being changed by God and someone who was changing the world. 
you think he had any idea that by him reading, uh, reaching out to D.L. Moody, that that would reach out to F.B. Meyer, that that would reach out to Wilbur Chapman, that Wilbur Chapman would have Billy Sunday, that Billy Sunday would bring in Mordecai Ham, and that Mordecai Ham would help be used to save the person that reached 215 million people in 185 different countries. So we might say, well, we can't have the same impact as Billy Graham. But could we reach the person who reaches that person? Could we have that kind of impact? Could we as a church continue to be people that have that kind of impact, that people would see our lives and they'd say, I want something, I want whatever it is that you have. Or that when we have a moment, someone says, do you really believe in Jesus? We don't act like Peter the first time and saying, oh no, I don't know him. No, we act like Peter the second time. We say, yes, I love him. And I love him because of what he's done for me and who he is. That we can continue to be that kind of church that has an impact, yes, here in San Diego County, but that expands throughout the world. And whether it's because of through our missionaries that we've sent out, through those of us that may become missionaries to be sent out, or whether it's just through sharing the gospel, the fact that we were all imperfect people and we have been perfected by Jesus Christ, that we've been imperfect people changed by God to make a change in this world. And if we do that, we won't know this side of heaven the amount of people that have been saved and have a right relationship with God. But how beautiful it will be that side of heaven when we get to meet them and know that we played a part, a link in a chain, so that lives and generations of lives would be saved because people who are willing to admit their imperfections were changed by God. And they didn't keep that for themselves, but they were changing the world. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. God, I pray that you would stir within us God, whatever it is that we need to hear this morning, you would stir within us, whether it's encouragement that, like Peter, we, were imp- we are imperfect people, but that we can be used by you. Maybe it's you need to stir conviction in us, that maybe we've allowed our sins or our struggles to seemingly overweigh or overwhelm the power of your Holy Spirit, and we f- ask for forgiveness for that. Lord, whatever it is that we are experiencing right now, God, and I pray that you are moving in our hearts and in our minds for us to realize that we don't have to be perfect. And in fact, you use our imperfections, that in our weaknesses, you are made strong. Your grace is sufficient for us. So may we own the ways in which we aren't perfect. May we try to become more like you, but may we recognize that when we're broken, that you can use that to be a light to people. And so, Lord, I pray that you would stir in our hearts whatever needs to be stirred so that we would become so passionate about you and people finding out about you that, like Peter, we're passionate followers that are ready for whatever you have in store. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for changing us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.